Good evening, everyone. My name is Danielle, and today we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's on page 939. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave us as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of, to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring us to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness to of, of others. Sorry, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gifts gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks, to be God, uh, thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus, is not, Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he, is, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carried the offering which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show, show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer his liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we're sending the, with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honour to Christ. Therefore, show, the, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Amen. Evening. Uh, my name's Andrew. I haven't met you before. It's great to see you at church tonight. Uh, it'd be great if you can keep that passage of the Bible open. We're going to spend a bit of time in uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Also, after the sermon, there'll be a chance to ask some questions. Um, so I'll preach, we'll sing a song, and then I'll get up and answer some questions. So if you have any questions uh, while I'm going, hold them and ask them a little bit later. I'd love to answer them. 
I want to introduce you to a guy. You to a guy. You may not know him. His name's Dick Smith. Uh, he used to own a bunch of uh, electronic stores. He was. Uh, he's a, he's an Australian who's famous for his philanthropy. He's also famous for his entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, but in terms of a, his philanthropy, he gives away a lot of money. A few years ago, Dick Smith got really angry because he didn't think that all his millionaire buddies were being generous enough. And uh, this is what Dick Smith had to say. He said, I'm absolutely disgusted that most of the wealthy are so utterly selfish. I cannot work out how everyone is letting them get away with it. I'm going to out these people. If they don't donate, they are going to be embarrassed. Dick Smith's plan was to name and shame other wealthy people uh, into being more generous, to guilt them into giving away their money. And he was going to kind of spread it on nice and thick. But is guilt the motivation for generosity? Should you give because you feel guilty? Well, I know a lot of people, when they walk into church, that's what they expect. They expect guilt. Uh, They think that coming to church is just going to be a long list of guilt. Guilty because you're not giving enough. Guilty because you're not doing enough. Guilty because you're not coming enough. Guilty because you're not godly enough. And to be honest, I can understand why people go to that as a motivator for people. People motivate others with guilt because it works. I feel bad or I look bad, so I give or I do something or I turn up or I knuckle down and try harder. I feel guilty, so I swing into action. But is that right? Is guilting people into giving and to to serving and to growing and to doing more, is that the answer? Is that what the Bible wants? Is that what God wants from us? We're going to have a look at the answer as we dive into 2 Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tonight. Now, uh, this is the third week in our Neither Poverty Nor Riches series where we're trying to work out how do we glorify God with our money and our possessions. In the first week, we saw that God made everything, and that means He owns everything, everything that God made, including money and possessions. It is good, and God has generously entrusted it to us as we bear His image in the world. Uh, Last week, we saw that money and possessions, they are not gods themselves to be served, they are not to be worshipped, and they are not to be treasured. But we're to be single-focused, not on money and possessions, but on the kingdom of God. We're to seek eternal treasure to trust and trust in God for the rest. And this week we're going to see what it is that's going to motivate that sort of generosity. And the short answer is, generosity will be fueled by grace, not guilt. Generosity will be fueled by grace, not guilt. And the passage where we see this in action is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, Now, to make sense of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it helps to understand the context in which it was written. So Paul, the apostle, is writing to the church in Corinth, and they thought they were really sophisticated (laughs) on that map there. Corinth is kind of where that little circle is. It would be in modern-day Greece. Uh, And at that time, there was a severe famine in Judea. The Jewish Christians uh, living there, particularly in Jerusalem, were suffering, suffering terribly. They were persecuted by the Jewish authorities and the Roman rulers, And under that persecution as well, there was this famine and there wasn't enough food to go around. And so what Paul was doing was he was taking up a collection from all the other churches to help these struggling Christians in Judea. He was collecting money from all these churches scattered around the Mediterranean. And he and kind of trusted uh, brothers in Christ were going to travel back to Judea together with this gift. And Paul, what he'd done is he'd written to the Corinthians in advance And and he'd written to them in advance and he'd asked them to set aside money. 
And now the time is drawing near where Paul is actually going to be passing through Corinth. And it's almost time for Paul to come through Corinth and for them to actually hand over the gift that they have promised. And, and Paul is very keen. He's almost anxious to make sure that they follow through on their word. And so part of what he does in this letter is he reminds them of what they've committed to do. And he reminds them of what they've committed to do. And as he does, so he, he kind of busts a myth and he reminds them of the key to generosity and he challenges them to follow through. Uh, so Paul begins this section on generosity by busting a myth. And the myth is that poverty is a barrier to generosity. And the way that Paul busts this myth that is by appealing to the overwhelming generosity of these Macedonian Christians he talks about. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, have a look there. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. I'm a poor uni student. Have you seen how much my bills are this week? The cost of living just keeps going up and up. I'm not getting as many shifts as I've asked for. Things are just tired at the moment. My parents aren't helping me out as much as they used to. Now, these are excuses that we've either said or heard, or maybe you're rehearsing them in your head right now as you hear me speak about money and generosity. We've all got a reason why now is not the time to be generous. But Paul is pointing to the example of the Macedonian Christians and he's pointing to them saying poverty is no reason to not be generous. Poverty is no barrier to generosity. You see, Macedonia wasn't exactly the cultural capital of the, of the, of the world at the time. It was no sophisticated Wellington. Uh, if you lived in Corinth, which was kind of classy and sophisticated and cultured, you would have considered the Macedonians to be kind of a little slow, a little backward, the Bogans, the Hillbillies, the Palmerston North, the Hamilton, the, the, the South Island, whatever, whatever it is for you, whatever that place is for you. Yeah, yeah. Just, just wait, Kelvin. Just wait. Yeah. Just wait, Kelvin. The Macedonians, they were unsophisticated. They were poor, but yet they were richly generous. And you Corinthians, he's saying, Paul, is you don't have an excuse. Poverty is no barrier to generosity. And this is borne out time and time again, even in our world today. Which country tops the world giving index? Which country has the highest proportion of people who had given to charity within the, within the last month of a survey, this survey? Burma. A country whose GDP is $1,300 per person per year. A country as poor as Burma, they can lead the world giving index when it comes to being generous. And do you know out of Australia, New Zealand, which one is higher? Yeah, Australia. <laughs> so even those bogans in Australia can be more generous than you sophisticated Kiwis. Poverty is no barrier to generosity. Time and time again, the, the poor are shown to give a greater percentage of their money away than those who are rich. Recent studies in America show that those in the top 20% of the income bracket give 1.3% of their income to charity. 
And those in the bottom 20% of the income bracket, they give more than double that. 3.2% of their income they give to charity. And it happens in church too. Often the giving per person in a church isn't much different in an affluent area compared to a, a poorer area. And it's happening with the Macedonian Christians as they, despite their poverty, give generously to their fellow believers, as they're excited about their opportunity, as they plead with Paul to partner with them in giving for their brothers and sisters in Christ in need. So what is the motivation? What is the key for this rich generosity of the Macedonians? How can they, despite their poverty, be so generous to others? We get the first glimpse of that back in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1. Verse 1, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Did you see it there? The generosity that flows from the grace given by God. The grace given by God, God's unconditional kindness shown towards them. And we see exactly what this looks like just a little bit further down in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So what is the key to being generous? Well, Paul says the first part is to realise Christ's riches and our poverty. Each year, Forbes publishes a, a list of the richest people in the world, and to get on that list, you need a, a billion dollars at least. At the top of the list at the moment is the guy who founded Amazon. Uh, he's worth one point, uh, so $131 billion, up $19 billion from last year. That's a lot of money. But these lists, the Forbes rich list, the NBR rich list, there's, there's always one massive omission. There's always one person who is the wealthiest, the most powerful, the most influential, who always misses out. You see, there is one whose hands flung the stars into space. There is one who made all things, and without him, nothing has been made. Nothing was made that has been made. There is the one who is the King of kings and Lords of, Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, who stands at the beginning and the end of eternity. You see, Jesus was unimaginably rich. And we were impossibly poor. You see, even with what we might scrape together in our savings account or, you know, maybe in the, the life of your career, you might pay off a house or store up some investments. Even if you were to become as rich as Bill Gates, we stand before God as morally and spiritually bankrupt. Each and every one of us. God looks at our account and the, and the cupboard is bare. We have nothing to our name. We, can, we, we have nothing to offer God. And not only that, but we owe God a massive debt no restructure is going to manage or fix it for us. We experience a spiritual bankruptcy well beyond our understanding because of our sin and our rebellion against God. You see, Christ was exceedingly rich and we are astonishingly poor. But something has changed. Christ has become poor. Christ left the wealth and power and privilege of being God, the Son of the Father, and he came into this world and he left it all behind. And he became poorer still. After growing up in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, he had this kind of mildly unsuccessful teaching ministry and even the few followers he had deserted him in the end when they finally nailed him to a cross. And to add insult to injury, 
kind of to further highlight his poverty, as he was hanging there on the cross, all that was left of his worldly possessions was divided up amongst the soldiers standing around at the bottom of the cross. And they say that the only thing that Jesus owned in the end, the only thing he had to his name, was the cross on which he was nailed to. The rugged and brutal cross on which he died, the instrument of torture and execution, where he was put to death for the sins that he did not commit, where he was nailed to a tree, dying a death, taking a punishment, paying a debt that wasn't his to pay. You see, Christ became poor, the poorest of the poor. And why? So that you, through his poverty, might become unimaginably rich so that you can have your debt paid, so that you can be free from the penalty for your sins, so that you can have eternal life, so that you can have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, so that you can have a hope and a future. And a hope and a future that is not dependent upon the size of your house or the prospects of your job or the state of your health. You can have life that will not end in death. You can have a relationship with God. You can have God's Holy Spirit within you, a great inheritance kept in heaven for you because you have been made rich. You have been made rich through Christ's poverty. And if we trust in Jesus, if we come to him admitting our poverty, admitting our debt, acknowledging that we have fallen short, that we have sinned, we have rebelled against the Holy God, If we come to him and acknowledge that, then we have been made rich through the blood of Jesus. You see, for Paul, this is the key to being generous. Verse 9 again, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see, when we see how poor we are without Jesus, when we see how rich Christ was when he emptied himself to save us, when we see the price that he paid so that we might be rich, when we realise this, when we realise this grace that God has shown us, that is what inspires rich generosity. This is what Paul wants to motivate the Christians so can the, the Christians in Corinth to contribute to this generous gift. And so he tells them that now is the time to put their money where their mouth is. <coughs> He's saying there's a time where they need to stop talking and they need to start giving. Verse 10 and 11. Uh, take a look at verse 10. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were not the first only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Now Paul's outlined the key to being generous. It's driven by grace. So he urges the Corinthians to put their money where their mouth is, to follow through and give. Paul's actually saying here, it's not, he's actually saying, it's not just the thought that counts. Uh, Typically, people say that when they've kind of come up short on the gift that they were supposed to give. Uh, One Christmas, uh, my family had this scheme. Uh, We were all kids at the time, so we didn't have jobs or didn't have money around. So my parents would give us each the same amount of money, and it was to go out to the shops and buy gifts for the rest of the members in our family. But I've got little brothers who are twins, and they were pretty clever. They decided they're twins, they'll combine their money, 
They'll buy combined presents for the rest of their family and they'll buy the cheapest present they possibly can, which meant they'd have a lot left over to buy each other a really sweet gift. And so I was 15 at the time and I got a packet of three highlighters for Christmas, (laughs) whereas my little brothers got exactly what they wanted from each other. And I was pretty annoyed, but my little brothers just kept saying, no, 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 it's the thought that counts, it's the thought that counts. When someone fails to deliver, they say it's the thought that counts. Well, Paul is saying here, it isn't just the thought that counts. The the gift for the poor in Jerusalem, it needs to be followed through with. They need to put their good intentions into action. And they need to do it not under compulsion, according to their means, but they need to do it. They need to do it motivated by God's grace, being swept up by God's grace, by being realised how rich they have been made by Jesus, and that that needs to flow through into rich generosity, grace-driven generosity. That's what Paul has seen in these Macedonian Christians who didn't have much. And that's what he wants to see in these Corinthian Christians, the ones who have talked big, and now he wants to see them put it into action. Now, there are a few implications that are worth us fleshing out now about what this grace-inspired generosity will actually look like. And we're going to jump through a few other passages in the New Testament to see what it actually looks like in action. The first is in the next chapter. (coughs) In chapter 9, grace-inspired generosity will be cheerful. It'll be cheerful. So flip over uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Verse 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what Paul is saying here is pretty simple. He's saying, if you don't want to give, if you don't want to be generous, don't. Don't. If you're going to be grumpy because you were generous, Paul's saying, keep the money to yourself. Why? God loves a cheerful giver. It gives God no joy if you give under compulsion, if you give under some sort of feeling of guilt or regret or that you feel kind of pressured into it. And like we saw in Genesis chapter 1, everything belongs to God anyway. It's, it's already His. Uh, and like we see in Psalm 50, God doesn't need our money. If God is hungry, He's not going to look to us. To, he's not dependent upon us and our gifts. God is pay, perfectly capable of getting on with growing His kingdom without our pocket change. But really, why wouldn't we be cheerful? Why wouldn't we be cheerful? God has been so good to us. He has made us so rich in Christ. He has privileged us with the the opportunity to partner with him in his mission. And if we're not cheerful uh, when it comes to giving and and, and parting with our our money for the sake of the gospel, if if that doesn't bring us joy, then maybe it's a bit of a diagnostic for us. Maybe it's telling us that money actually has power over us. Maybe it's telling us that we're actually a slave to money or the possessions that it can bring. Maybe it's telling us that money has become our master and we need to heed Jesus' words from last week, which were, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the, money, the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, a love of money leads to kind of a a tight-fisted reluctance. But a love for God and His grace to you, well, that leads to cheerful, joyful generosity. 
The next thing about grace-fueled generosity is that it will be regular. It will be consistent. In 1 Corinthians, uh, the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, uh, Paul was writing about this same collection for the famine in Judea, and this is what he said. It's here on the screen. Uh, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Now, do you notice what Paul is saying there? The first day of the week. He's saying, decide what you'll give before you've begun spending what you've got. He's saying, don't wait to the end of the week to, uh, to, to give a bit out of what is left. He's saying, plan your giving before you plan your spending. And he's saying to do it regularly. To do it regularly. You see, I mean, we know this in other areas of life, don't we? If you want to learn an instrument, how do you do it? Do you practice for three hours on Saturday or do you practice a little bit every day? You do it regularly. That's how you get better. If you want to get fit, do you run a marathon on on the weekend or do you, you go running for 30 minutes every day? Paul says it's the same with generosity. Deliberate, regular, planned, prioritised generosity. And this might mean for you that you need to do a budget. And to be honest with you, Adele and I have, this series has prompted us to think that we need to do our budget again. And so, uh, like we're old now, so when we sit down one night with our peppermint tea and our laptops after the kids have gone to bed and... The first line item in our budget, it's going to be giving. The first thing that will go in before we decide anything else, we're going to work out how much we're going to give away. And then we'll work out the rest. Prioritizing giving. Give regularly, says Paul. The next thing we see in the New Testament is that we ought to give with the right priorities. Give with the right priorities. For this, we're going to jump to Galatians chapter 6. It's here on the screen. Galatians chapter 6. Let us, not be, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Uh, now, this is controversial. Uh, some people will find this uncomfortable. But I think the New Testament is really clear that Christians ought to prioritise their giving to Christian causes, to church, to mission work, to the Christian poor, uh, should prioritise that over other things. Now, it's controversial, I know, uh, but hear me out. Uh, A bunch of people went along to hear about Open Doors, the work that they do, serving persecuted Christians around the world. Who's going to give to an organisation like Open Doors? Is your neighbour or your flatmates who don't know Jesus going to give to them? Who's going to fill a box of toys for Operation Christmas Child so that kids and families can hear the good news about Jesus? Who's going to support Alan and Sarah, our mission partners, whose goal is to uh, share the good news of Jesus with northern Iraq? They're not going to get government funding for that. Now, I'm not saying don't support anything that isn't Christian. Paul says here, let us do good to all people. He does say, let us do good to all people. But he also says, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 
Paul's saying that there needs to be a priority to the family of believers, to Christian causes, to church, to mission, to Christians in need. So to give cheerfully, give regularly, give with the right priorities. And remember, we're to give because of grace, not guilt. Grace, not guilt. See, guilt is the junk food of motivation. It's quick, it's easy, it does the job, it might taste good for a moment, but in the end, we, we end up as unhealthy disciples. We begin to crave a regular kick up the pants before we're motivated to do anything. And what's worse is when we use guilt as our only motivation, it begins to teach us that the right response to when we fail is just to try harder. And so we end up living out this kind of essentially a version of legalism, which is I feel bad, so I do more. And if I do more, then that makes me feel a little bit better for a while. You know, if I'm doing more, if I'm trying harder, if I'm giving more, if that's your regular response to feeling guilty, that's just legalism, really. Trying to make the situation better by good works. But instead, Paul wants us to cast our vision to Jesus and his cross. To set our sights on his redeeming grace. So cast your sights on Jesus. Pray for God to work in your heart by his spirit to transform you from the inside out. Now, from time to time, guilt can be the reminder that we need. It can be the kick up the pants that we need, but not to spur us into action, but to cast our eyes again on Jesus, to drive us again to the cross, to realize our spiritual poverty and what God has done for us, to grasp again the gift that God has given us, knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In knowing this, being shaped by this, being transformed by this, this is what will lead to, this is what will inspire rich generosity. Will you pray with me as we ask for God to inspire us by this? Heavenly Father, we, we are poor. We have sinned, we have rebelled against you, we have not been generous, we have not done your will, not obeyed your word. But yet, despite that, Christ has emptied himself, has become poor, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be made rich. And Lord, inspire us by that grace to be richly generous, to be joyful and cheerful as we partner with you and your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.